0: So the very first thing we're going to see in this section this morning really has to do with Jesus showing himself to be the Son of Man. I love this title because Jesus would commonly call himself the Son of Man. It's a, very, it's a title he used a lot. I'll tell you why this is a cool title. Because to some extent, aren't we all like sons and daughters of men? Like if you don't know anything about Jesus, you're like, oh, he's just like us, right? But when you start to read the Word of God, you realize that's a title of great deed. It's a title of messianic promise. And when you start to realize and study the Word of God, you realize Jesus is more than just some son of a man. He is the Son of Man, amen. He is the Messiah, He is Lord, He is God the Son, and He's going to prove it in many ways through this section this morning. Look at what happens in verse 1 through 4 of Mark chapter 2. It says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. <laughs> So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So we've got to stop it here because we want some context. We have something that says, again, he entered Capernaum after some days. We say, well, he's entering again. We saw this in chapter 1. He was in Capernaum. Capernaum was a city that Jesus referred. It was called his own city in Matthew 9.1. This was like his headquarters of his Galilean ministry. This was the place where we we see him commonly Doing great ministry to great success. We're told that his fame had spread. We saw that in chapter one. We say, well, how did his fame spread? We're told in Mark 1:45 that he could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and people had to come to him from every direction. Because he had been casting out demons. He had been healing multitudes, healing people. Remember in Mark chapter 1, we had that one really long Sabbath day we talked about last week, right? He went in, he woke up, he taught at the synagogue at church in the synagogue is a demon possessed dude right that should warn you ladies looking for a husband at church okay there can be okay I'm just saying test all things and this guy starts screaming out and Jesus cast the demon out then he goes to the humble home of, of Peter and, and, and his brother Andrew and they go there and his mother-in-law was sick And he healed her. So not only can Jesus cast out demons, but he can heal as well. I think that's important. Jesus isn't just here to get rid of the bad. He can bring the good. Amen. And then from there, word got out. And as soon as the Sabbath was done, when the sun had set, everyone came in groves. And they said, we want healing. We want miracles too. And Jesus, the servant, the perfect servant, continually ministered to them, was pouring out miracle after miracle. And the people were seeking him constantly for this. And it says that his fame just went out everywhere. But it was, it was kind of detrimental to some, some extent because it was hard now for some to come directly to Jesus because the crowds were so great. How do we get to you? There's so much crowd around. So he went to deserted places. And I think it's cool. People would then come to him. But in this case, we see he's back into Capernaum. And as he's there, it says there were so many people gathered you couldn't even get to the doorway. And see, in the dwellings in, in, in this time, in this age, you would leave your door open or your windows open. It kind of was an open invite that you can peer in, that you could be in on the conversation. When you shut the door, no, this is a private thing, but you uh, generally as a community, they'd leave their doors open. It was an opportunity to get to know one. It was like open house all the time. And when they had these doors open, it was like, oh, let's see what's happening here. Hey, Jesus is in there. The miracle worker, the circus that we've heard about, right? Let's all get together and just watch the show. Even if we don't believe in this guy, we're going to see something crazy, right? And they're gathered, they're packed out. We're actually told in Luke 5.17 that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law that came from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. We know what these guys thought of Jesus, generally speaking, right? They aren't there because they're seeking faith in Jesus. They're there to give Him a hard time. They're there to get in the way of the ministry of Jesus. They're there to say, no, this isn't our Messiah. We know better than this. We're going to explain to you guys why He shouldn't be taking our power. He shouldn't be taking our prestige. And they're crowding out the room. It's making it difficult for people to come in. But you know what's so awesome? (laughs) Jesus still preaches... No matter who's in the room. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to preach. I'm going to tell you the truth. It says here, he preached the word to them. And that word for preach is laleo. This means to announce or preach the word of God or the doctrine of salvation, which Jesus said was his ministry's purpose in Mark one thirty-eight. Have you ever thought that Jesus came to be a miracle worker? Jesus came to be the healer of all healers? Don't get me wrong. He healed and he was a miracle worker. But do you know that he came first to preach the gospel of salvation? He said, my ministry is to preach. And we saw what the message was in Mark 1.15. It was repent and believe in the gospel. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never called sinners to repent. <laughs> it's the first words of Jesus Christ. Amen? This should be a consistent theme of anything we're teaching, anything we're talking about. We as Christians need to be careful because we can start to go back into things in the world. We need to constantly making sure we are living in repentance under the Lord. And so the world definitely needs to hear. So you guys need to stop going after the things of the world. You need to stop trusting yourself. Jesus says, "I am here calling you to repent." That means to turn around from the things that you are doing, from the things that you are trusting in, and believe, put your faith in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the Messiah has arrived and the Messiah is going to come and he's going to make right. He's going to bring justice. He's going to bring truth. But can I tell you what he's going to bring? Peace between man and God. As we put our faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death, his atoning death upon the cross brings us peace with God the Father. Amen? Nothing else will ever bring you justification before God only the completed work of Jesus and he says I'm coming to everyone this is the good news but you have to repent and trust in me and so as he says this as he's preaching imagine he's preaching and teaching here and it says that in verse 3 these men came bringing a paralytic a man that was suffering we believe suffering from palsy according to the language that Luke the physician uses which was a it was basically the paralysis of nerves so we know he obviously can't walk we see that in here but they said this could even mess up the way you, you might be able like unable to speak you might be unable to use your hands like this is a a, a terrible form of suffering here and these guys they bring him in and it's incredible because I think these men heard about what Jesus was doing and they said man we believe that Jesus could heal our friend (laughs) And he said, let's put him on that bed. Let's put him on this thing. Again, Luke, the physician, it's cool to read his stuff because he uses medical terms. And he's basically describing like a stretcher of sorts. Some people call it a mat. Some people call it a poor man's bed. He refers to it almost like a stretcher. And so they bring him in on this thing, and they're carrying him, and they say, we've got to get him to Jesus. Have, I hope that we're friends like that <laughs> in the Lord to our friends that don't know Jesus. <laughs> I hope that we go, man, I don't know what needs to happen, but I know this. We need to get you to Jesus. (laughs) I don't have the answers, but Jesus will have the answers. Jesus will have the healing. We need to get you to him. But imagine they show up and the door is just crowded out. And they go, we can't get him through. We're carrying a stretcher. It's hard enough just to see what's happening in there. And so in these times, they would have on the dwelling, on the side of a dwelling, you'd have a staircase. Remember, the climate in Israel is much like Southern California. Many of you guys from there, okay? You would go up on the rooftop, and you'd have these cool nights. You could hang out. You could fellowship up there. It was a place, a secondary place, where you could be, where you could spend time at. But in this case, they go up the staircase. So If you're wondering, how do you get a guy up on a roof? There's a staircase there. They get up there, and what they start to do, they start uncovering. The word for uncovering is apostagezo in the Greek. This means to take apart know about you guys, but if I'm teaching right now, and this roof starts coming apart, and a man on a bed starts getting lowered, wouldn't that be nuts? First of all, I don't know why they'd be doing that with me here, but with Jesus, we'd understand, right? Jesus has the ability to heal. These guys go, we are gonna to go to the greatest lengths possible. We're gonna nothing is gonna keep us from getting our friend to Jesus. Forget the crowds that are that are trying to fight Jesus and prove him wrong. Forget the crowds that just wanna see miracles. We want to bring him to be healed. And we believe that he can. We believe in the testimony and the word of Jesus Christ because we got to get him there. And so it says they let his bed through the tiling. (laughs) So they're taking apart the roof. These guys are so determined. They're cutting through. They're digging through the roof. Look at what happens in verses 5 through 7. It says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus, teaching, preaching, telling everyone we need to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's teaching them, proclaiming them the things of salvation. Down comes the man <laughs> on some ropes of sorts. I'm imagining they're lowering this guy down. And remember, they don't have a backup plan, right? How do you get a guy back up through a roof after you've lowered him, right? That's a lot harder than lowering a guy down. They're like, we're just hoping this takes somehow, right? So they're dropping him down there, and Jesus sees their determination, and it says that he saw their faith. <laughs> That's a crazy statement, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, according to Hebrews 11.1. But Jesus says, no, I'm seeing their faith, the faith of of his friends. Can I tell you, there's action, there's fruit of their faith being put out there for everyone to see, and Jesus goes, man, your actions are absolutely relaying, conveying what you believe and who you believe I am. That sentence right there should convict every one of us if we profess our mouth that Jesus is the Lord, but we don't act like it. We don't walk out. Can people see our faith in Jesus Christ, amen? I hope that our children see our faith in Jesus Christ. A struggle all the time is that, man, I know, my kids know I'm a pastor. (laughs) They can't get away from it, right? I hope they know that dad has a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's shown when the bill comes that we didn't expect. When the diagnosis comes, we didn't expect. When the twists of the plans come, we go, oh no, what are we going to do? I hope they can see the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. I don't want my kids going, yeah, dad said he was a pastor. He said he was a Christian. Mom said this. I hope they see the actions. Amen? Didn't Jesus say you'll know them by their fruit? (laughs) Right? If you abide in Jesus and He abides in you, you have this relationship. You are now in the vine and you will bear much fruit. But without Him, you can do nothing. It says in John 15, 5. And see, these guys, they have a faith so strong that they said, we're going to put our friends on a bed. We're going to carry him. We're going to take him upstairs. That sounds exhausting already, by the way. Then we're going to cut a a hole in someone's roof. It's not our house. We're going to cut a hole in this dude's roof. That's pretty risky, right? Liability, right? We're going to put him through, and we're going to trust that Jesus is going to heal him. What if he doesn't heal him? It seems like they didn't even get to that point. They said, no, nah, Jesus is going to heal this guy. <laughs> Jesus is going to work. We believe that Jesus is going to do something here. But look what Jesus says, right? He, the guy lands in front of him, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> you're on the roof, and you're like, that's cool. But we got to get him out of here somehow, right? I'm glad his sins are forgiven, but what about his legs? What about his body, right? (laughs) It's interesting because sometimes we get caught up in the physical things that we want healing from. The physical things around us. Jesus, you need to heal this job I'm in. (laughs) You need to heal my marriage. You need to heal this thing. You need to heal that thing. Those are all great things. But can I tell you, have you dealt with your sins that you need to take to Jesus to be forgiven for? Have you put your trust in Jesus' forgiveness before you've come and asked Jesus the genie to do your bidding? I know I do that sometimes. I go, Jesus, I'm just going to call on your name to do the X, Y, and Z. But man, this fellowship needs to be united first in forgiveness. The very first and most important need of every human being is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. (laughs) You see, we're told again in Romans 5.1 that we have peace with God by faith and have been justified through Jesus Christ when Jesus says your sins are forgiven you guess what your sins are forgiven you have peace with God amen now what if Jesus says well I'm not going to forgive your sins but I'm going to heal your legs have fun walking yourself right into hell and eternal separation that's no good right (laughs) we don't need that we need forgiveness above all other things and I have to imagine these guys are probably like that's not what we brought them for (laughs) but I'll tell you what we know some people were thinking in the room Some people heard Jesus say that, and you know what they said? It says the scribes that were there, the guys that studied the law, the guys that were supposed to be the religious elite, these guys hear what he says, and they say, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And we would answer that and say, yes, correct. (laughs) Only God can forgive sins. As Jesus is verbally telling this man, hey, son, your sins are forgiven you. I tell you, that's a claim of deity in the fact that he says that out loud and says it with authority and affirms it and says your sins are forgiven. And these guys are like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. You may have this little Messiah complex, Jesus, but you are not God who forgives. Think about it. Daniel, I think it's Daniel 9.9. 9. It says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. In Isaiah 45, 44, 48, and 43, it says that only God can forgive The Same with Psalm 103.3. But you see, these guys studied the law and they held on to this idea that God is this God. He, this is the only God. This is who He is. And when Jesus starts giving out forgiveness, the guys that studied the Word of God themselves... Could not reconcile the fact that the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, all that spoke that man, the Son was coming <laughs> and he's going to be God the Son. He's going to be the Son of Man. He is going to be the Lord. He is going to be the one who can get forgiveness. But instead of, of believing upon the word of Jesus, they said, man, this, this guy blasphemes. And I tell you why this is important is because in Mark, we're told in Mark 14, 64, when they bring Jesus to trial in the Jewish trial, one of the things they try to charge Jesus with is blasphemy. They say, oh, we've heard him say blasphemous things. This is one of the, this is like the first instance where we get this rub, where these guys are like, oh, he's, he's a blasphemer. This is the, they're, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying that Jesus Christ is a blasphemer and a liar. You might say, well, hey, people don't do that anymore, Right? <laughs> Look, it may not be in the same circumstance, but people that reject Jesus' testimony of being the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to God the Father except through Him, that's blasphemy to say, no, that He's not. I can come some other way. I can come however I want to. Jesus says, no. You need to be forgiven, and forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? And see, in this case, as, he's, as they're doing this, they're, they're saying He's a blasphemy. Look what happens in 8 through 12. It says... But immediately, when Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? (laughs) Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. (laughs) I'm just curious, who's heard this story before? Almost everyone, right? Give yourself a great opportunity here. Wash away the, the idea that you've ever heard this story before, okay? <laughs> Come in with fresh eyes and go, I didn't expect him to get healed. <laughs> do we understand how insane this scene is? <laughs> a man on, a, on ropes on a bed just got dropped down in front of Jesus, who's proclaiming to be the Son of God and forgiving people. And he forgives this guy of his sins out loud, and the people are like, You can't forgive. Only God can do that. You know what else only God can do? Heal a paralytic. And he says, okay, you guys are reasoning in your hearts over here, which, by the way, when Jesus starts telling you what you're thinking in your heart, isn't that another sign, right? (laughs) You're like, guys, I hear what you're thinking. What? (laughs) That's no good, right? We've already shown, he's already cast out demons, he's already done all these things, and still they're insisting on not turning to him. Have you ever been frustrated by the people around you that won't put their faith in Jesus? You're like, oh, if only Jesus would do a miracle for them. No! Sometimes the stubborn heart of man is continually refusing the clear signs that Jesus is Lord. But in the instance where these guys let this man down in front of him... (laughs) He calls out everyone's everyone's wickedness in their heart. And in verse 9, he uses a practice that was common in rabbinic debates. It's called a cross question. And the cross question is this. He says, all right, you guys are so smart, right? What is easier to say? So he's not asking about what's easier to do. He's saying, what's easier to say? He says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to arise and take up your bed and walk? This is clearly rhetorical. Because everyone would go, well, anyone could say sins are forgiven. Couldn't I say anything I want to if there's no tangible evidence? Who knows if it took? If I say, oh, hey, your sins are forgiven you. I don't know if you did business with the Lord. Jesus, though, knows that He can forgive sins. When He proclaims sins to be forgiven, they're forgiven. But those in the room that don't believe, they don't know. They're looking for tangible evidence. Again, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They're saying, well, okay, He's forgiven by faith. But how do we know you're telling the truth? He says, okay, so it would be harder if I healed this guy, right? (laughs) That would prove that there is some deity and authority in the things that I'm saying, correct? And everyone would have to say, well, of course. But they're thinking, he's not going to heal the guy, sure. Okay, sure, yeah, whatever you say. And it says that he turned to the paralytic, I love this. (laughs) He says, first of all, I want you guys to know that the Son of Man has power. Power on earth to what? To forgive sins. Jesus was not concerned with proving to everyone that he could heal someone's legs. Can I be clear on that? His concern was not, I'm I'm here to be a miracle worker. I'm here to show you that my message and who I am is going to forgive of sins. Amen? When we start talking about all the blessed things Jesus can give you, instead of talking about the need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, we've missed the mark on this. Those things, hey, praise the Lord for the blessings that come in Jesus. Amen? But can I tell you, the very first, most important, miraculous blessing that we receive is the forgiveness of sins and peace with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And right at this moment, he says, I want you to know that I have power. The word for power is exousia. This word exousia in the Greek, it means that you've been given power by God, by the authority, by the king. You've been given this authority from from someone. And in this case, when he says, I want you to know that I have power to forgive sins, this is key, because his whole message was you need to repent. And believe in the gospel that I'm speaking. Well, why should we believe in you? Why should we believe what you're saying? He says, I'm going to prove to you that what I'm saying is absolutely true. And he turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, arise and take up your bed and go to your house. <laughs> this guy is a paralytic. You don't tell a paralytic, hey, why don't you just go ahead and try and get up? Stand up, go try, try, right? Imagine how bad that would be if we took that into our own hands sometimes, right? I have the faith, dude, stand up, and it just didn't work. That's a way to destroy your ministry immediately, right? Here Jesus says, hey, get up and do this. And what's the paralytic do? He hears the word of Jesus, and in faith he obeys it. (laughs) A great example to everyone in this room. (laughs) Have you been told through the word of God what you're supposed to do? If you have, then you're now called to obey it in faith because Jesus said it. I don't know what that looks like. It could be you need to forgive others as God has forgiven you. You need to trust that the Lord is not going to leave you nor forsake you. Maybe you need to understand the Lord has created you for a purpose. Maybe you need to understand that Jesus loves you. If He's written this in His Word, you need to receive it in faith and obey it. Amen? This paralytic, if he doesn't obey the Word of Jesus, I'm sorry. He's going to stay in that bed. But when Jesus says it and says, I've forgiven you of your sins and to prove that I have, I'm going to heal you. Get up guy gets out of bed that's a radical statement of faith when he says i'm going to throw my feet over and stand up take my bed and cut weave through the crowd the guys on the roof are so relieved by the way right they're like oh lord my arms were hurting from carrying him right he walks out through the door and everyone what are they saying they say this is amazing we've never seen anything like this The word amazed, it's exist in me. It means to be astounded. In Luke 5.26, they said, we have seen strange things today. (laughs) These are strange things we've never seen before. And see, often we read this kind of thing and people go, oh, well, Jesus doesn't work like that anymore, right? Can I tell you? First of all, He does still work in things like this. We've seen it. But the more often, the more common miracle that is the greatest miracle is that when people spiritually are forgiven of their sins because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. You may still be hurting. You may still be broke. You may still be, I don't know, what the world would call despised. But when you put your trust in Jesus, that that sin, that shame, that weight of all that goes away, and in that moment you realize, man, I have been healed spiritually. (laughs) And praise the Lord when He brings other healing as well. Amen? Can I tell you, Paul prayed three times for that that thorn in the flesh to be removed. You know what the Lord told him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. In in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. You're going to continue to trust in me in your weakness, but you're forgiven, and you're going to have a glorified body someday that's going to be so much better than what you know. Man, there's something so wonderful about Jesus. First of all, just forgiving our sins. That is a miracle. Don't let anyone downplay that Jesus doesn't still work. Because I'm telling you, our lives, everyone in here has put their trust in Jesus. We are a walking miracle of what the Lord has done. Amen? I'll tell you, people that... I know, know, there's people that are like, there's no way that that guy is a pastor of a church. (laughs) We used to know him. And maybe even still, they're like, there's still no way he should be a pastor of a church. I don't know. But I think overall, I think people look at it and they're like, dude, this is a testimony. That, that mess of a man. He's a slight, slightly better mess. No, I don't know. There's something about it where people can't argue the Lord uses broken vessels. He fills us with his glory, he fills us with his gospel, and he uses us and he redeems us for his glory. I don't know what you've been through. We studied it in 1 Timothy 1. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And he said, Timothy, if God will use me, he'll use you. <laughs> I don't know where you're at today, and you might say, man, I have sin, I have shame, I have things that I should be despising. Can I tell you, Jesus will forgive you of those sins. (laughs) Don't let those things keep you from doing the things the Lord has made you for. Amen? He wants to heal you, to use you for His glory. And we're told that Peter said in Acts 10.43, He said, To Him all the prophets witness that through His name, speaking of Jesus, whoever believes in Him will receive the remission of sins the greatest miracle that we can receive. Look at 13 through 14. We're going to see Jesus, the great physician. It says, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Elpheus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. And so we want to start here, we pause it for a second because there's a couple notes in here. I think it's kind of neat. It says that Jesus went out again by the sea. And the multitude came to him and he taught them. So we're talking about the fact that crowds were following Jesus and it would be difficult. It's funny, I think every church is like, oh man, I just want crowds, man. I want people. There's something about just people checking the box that just want to watch a show or show up. It's like, dude, that can almost be a nuisance to those that really want to grow in Jesus Christ. We want to continue to grow in the Lord. Praise the Lord if you're, hey, if you're here and you're checking a box, stop checking the box and commit your life to Jesus. Amen? I love that the majority of the church, everyone I've spoken to says, I'm here to go deeper in the Lord. Deeper in the word. And you know what? You come out here week by week, you make sacrifices to get here. Jesus went out to the wilderness, but people still came to him. And I'll tell you, those that desired to seek Jesus and to hear from him, they got to him and it was a blessing. When they got there, he didn't tell them, like, oh, cool, like, like, great, good to see you guys. He took time and taught them. He instructed them. The word for taught here is a different word than what it was earlier for preaching. It's didasco. This means to instruct. This means to give wisdom, wise instruction on how to live your life unto the glory of God. You see proverbs eight seventeen says of this kind of wisdom it says, "I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me we 're told in Hebrews those who diligently seek the Lord right they 're going to come and be blessed as they seek him he 'll be bound by us." He went out, but he says, I'll receive anyone that's willing to come to me. And when you come to me, you will receive great wisdom, you will receive great instruction. So it speaks of the remote nature of his ministry. But as he's coming back from teaching, doing what he does, he's coming through Capernaum, and he looks over and there's the tax office. Everyone loves tax offices, right? Isn't that just the best place to go and hang out? Don't you love doing business at the tax office? So he comes by here, and remember, this is in the time of Roman, Roman oppression. In the sense, Roman, Rome is in charge. Charge in this region, they're in control. And when you're, you got to pay your taxes. You know these are going to. This is going to Rome. We're giving our money to the people that are oppressive. Man, we are waiting for a Messiah. They believe to overthrow Rome, so we can get freed from this thing. And you have Matthew, who we know he's he's, he's called Levi here. He's called Matthew in Matthew nine nine. We know it's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew here. But he goes by Levi or Matthew, and he's sitting here. We know he's a Jew. He's a Jewish man. And when you worked as a tax collector, man, you were seen as two things a traitor, because you're working for Rome, you're taking your fellow countrymen's money, giving it to Rome, and saying, well, You're a thief, because guess how you made your money as a tax collector? on the overtaxes, <laughs> You see, the way you got a tax office was you went to like a bidding war and if you had enough money to get that, win that auction, you got the office and you were committed to pay Rome the expected minimum tax for that region. But everything above that, you could tax anyone you wanted to, any way you wanted to, and you get to keep it. <laughs> it was a very lucrative op- or kind of occupation, right? You make a lot of bank, you can make a lot of good money, <laughs> but you were also greatly despised. It's interesting, there's a lot of occupations. You can make a lot of good money and get despised these days, right? (laughs) But we see people go, man, money is the answer. I'm going to get money. Money will fix everything. And it doesn't fix everything. It actually often, a wise prophet once said, more money, more problems, actually. But, nah, some of you people know what's up. Okay. No, but seriously. Like, we think these things will solve issues, and they won't. And then he's despised. You go, man, Matthew, you're probably pretty miserable. (laughs) You look like you have the things. I mean, you won the the tax office in Capernaum. Can I tell you, Capernaum was on a trade route that went between Damascus and the Mediterranean. It was probably the most profitable tax office you could have. And he's in here. And Jesus looks in, and I love this. It said in verse 14 that Jesus looked in and he saw Levi. He saw Levi, the son of Elpheus, not Levi, the tax collector. Oh, that rat he's stealing from everyone, right? It's not what Jesus saw. Oh, Matthew, Levi, the successful businessman making tons of money. He doesn't need me, right? I'll just keep going. He looked in and saw, man, I see see Levi. I see Matthew. I see this man. And what he says, graciously he comes and he says, follow me. (laughs) See, we lose what this means in our common language and and what this looks like. This is a call to say, I am going to be your rabbi and you're going to be my disciple. Levi understood at this moment when he's being called he knew what this calling was I'm going to continually follow you as my teacher I'm going to follow you in wherever you may lead me and when he says come follow me we're told in Luke 5.28 it says that his immediate response he got up and he left it all it says in Luke he left it all behind I'll tell you there's been moments where the Lord has called me at times I remember in the world the Lord called me at times follow me and I didn't do it I regret, I remember being 18, okay, alright, I'm talking to the youth group now, everyone look at me, youth group, where you at? Whoop whoop, give me a whoop whoop, where's the the youth group? There you go, thank you, okay, youth group's here, youth group, I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I went to a chapel on a Wednesday night, and I remember the pastor taught from the section, where Jesus raises the woman's daughter. And as he, as he taught, I just remember the Lord convicted me, convicted me. I grew up in church, I grew up in youth group, I grew up in all of those things, Christian high school, Christian college now. And the Lord was hitting my heart that night, saying, You do not trust in me the way you're supposed to. You don't know healing, you don't know forgiveness, you are not living it for reals. You're doing lip service unto me. And I'll tell you, the Lord broke me down. I was crying, I was in tears. I remember hugging the pastor, and the pastor whispered in my ear, He said, You're going to do great things for the Lord. I said, oh man, this is awesome. Guess what happened like two days later? I went right back into the world. I went right back into the world. I could not deny the fact that there was an emotional, heavy experience. The Lord was goading my heart. He was poking my heart, saying, come to me. And it wasn't, that was in 2006. No, I'm sorry, 2003. I didn't come to the Lord until 2008. I regret five years I fought against the Lord because I thought, man, I got things to do. I'm young. I got friends. I got, I got all these opportunities. I want to chase these things. Can I tell you? You'll always be better off for leaving those things for Jesus. I don't know what your thing is, what you're holding on to, that you say, I can't follow Jesus now. Don't despise your youth. Give them to the Lord. He wants your hearts now. Amen? Amen? Amen. We as the older people know that time moves quickly, right? (laughs) We know. Man, we regret not doing that sooner. I pray that that would be a a, a word for you guys, not in my notes, but given I believe from the Lord to you guys. Amen? Up there? Awesome, thank you. Okay, when we see this here, (laughs) Levi leaves it all to follow him, and it says in verse 15, It says, Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. <laughs> this is an incredible incredible I just profound statement to what these guys are asking. You see, let's say, what is happening here? Why is Jesus here hanging out with Levi at this party, right? First of all, we're told, actually, in Luke 5.29, that Matthew threw this party in Jesus' honor. So he says, I'm going to have a party for Jesus. (laughs) And as I have this party, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to invite all of my fellow tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) The word for sinners, in the Greek, it's a cool word. It's hamartolos. It means heathens. These are just people that don't believe in the Lord. They don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in the God of Israel. At least they're not walking in it. And he says, I'm going to get all these people together, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to have a dinner with Jesus. (laughs) I couldn't help but think about when my wife and I were first married. It was 2009, 2010, right around that time. I had only been walking with the Lord for a couple years. I still don't know how she married me or why, but to praise the Lord for that. My wife has been walking with the Lord since she was a child and has been consistent in it. I was this new clunky Christian. And we come to the Lord and we're married and it was like, man, I have all these unsaved friends that were into all the same things I used to be into, all the things that I did. And I said, how do I reach them? They don't want to go to church. That's not palatable for them right now. And we said, you know what we'll do? It's funny. We started a thing called Monday Night Eating Club, right? Who doesn't like to eat at a thing called Monday Night Eating Club, right? That sounds awesome. We'd go. We lived in L.A. at the time. We'd look up the best places on Yelp that were, well, affordable. We were broke. But the best, like, $2 sign places on Yelp. And we'd go, and we'd tell all of our friends, hey, come with us. We're just going to go to dinner at these, like, cool places, at these cool spots. And these are the same guys that were in the room with me when we were at chapel in college but not committed to Jesus. These are the same guys that went with me when we tour as a band and get into all kinds of garbage. They were with us. But now, they're like, I don't know, James is crazy. He lost his mind. I think he got a bad batch or something, right? He's like following Jesus now. And we'd invite them over and they'd see, man, we're still James and Jen, but we're different now. We've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would bring them over, and we'd go out to dinner, and Jen is a phenomenal baker, and that's why I put on so much weight when I came to, yeah, okay, but she just cooked and baked, and they'd come back, and we'd hang out, and it was so funny, there'd be a Bible on the dining room table, be a Bible in the living room, and we would talk about the Lord, we'd pray before the meals, we'd pray after meals, we'd talk to them, and I'll be honest with you, there were times that I had people at the church... They said, dude, I don't know, man, that's dangerous. You could maybe potentially get pulled into bad things if you hang out with people like that. (laughs) I tell you, God forbid we start to think that we're supposed to stay in our little bubble, stay away from those that we love in the world and have an opportunity to witness to, to minister to. Levi, Matthew says, dude, this is my going away party, bro. (laughs) I am going with Jesus, and if you guys don't see me anymore, that's where I'm going, but I'm inviting you to come with me. I want you to come not with me, come with Jesus. And see, it says in the section section that Jesus was there, and He had many disciples, it said in verse 15. Don't think just the twelve. Jesus was calling people to follow Him all the time. You might say, well, I'm not righteous enough. He's calling sinners and tax collectors, thieves, cheaters. He says, come and follow me. I'm here to eat with you, commune with you, and see the religious leaders. They're like, oh, that's disgusting, right? Because they believed in that time, taking a meal together, that was something of like fellowship and trust. As I dip my bread in the, I don't know, the hummus or whatever, right? You dip yours in there, we're exchanging like, wow, they're all partaking the same thing. Pre-COVID, right? I I don't know, people get all weird out these days, right? They'd have to be like plastic and glass and garbage, right? But the reality is, these guys are like, man, this is a deep, deep thing to sit down and have a meal together. We don't have that in America. Like, I, we make business lunches with people we don't even know. Let's just go, we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to sell each other items or something. Like, this is the business thing. In that culture, when you sat down and had a meal, you were connecting with these people. You were having an opportunity. And man, the religious leaders are like, dude, this is making that guy, like, look ceremonially defiled. And Jesus hears what they're saying. <laughs> I love it. He doesn't even have to read their hearts, this one. He hears them. And what he says, he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is the great physician. (laughs) Let me just give you some reasons why Jesus is the great physician. First of all, He can heal anybody. Amen? He's the greatest physician because He heals us of the greatest disease, which is sin. He's also the greatest physician because He gives you a perfect diagnosis. (laughs) He says, you're a sinner, you need to be forgiven. And then he even paid the price. <laughs> you ever go to the doctor and you're like, ooh, dude, this bill's too much. I'm never going to the doctor again. Jesus says, i paid it. <laughs> Jesus is the greatest physician in all forms of fashion, but there's one rule. You have to accept the diagnosis that you're a sinner. And you have to say, man, I need to be saved. I need to be healed. I need to be cleansed. And Jesus says, if you come to me, <laughs> understand that if you are one of the sick I'm going to call you to repentance, and I am a physician that can heal you from your sickness. You see, so often right now, people want to tell you, you are just fine the way you are. He sees you. He gets you. Stay how you are. I tell you, Jesus says, no, 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 I see how you are, but I'm not going to leave you there. What kind of a doctor would scan you for cancer and say, hey, listen, there's cancer throughout your body, but you're good. Just hang out, right? You'd say, with urgency, you say, we have to get you in, we have to fix this, we have to remove this, and I am capable. Trust me, we'll get it covered. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. You have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to trust what you've told me. I'm going to trust that you're able, and I'm going to go ahead and commit to this. (laughs) But see, these men said, oh, he eats with sinners? You know what they're saying? Saying, oh, we're not sinners. But they are, and he eats with them. Disgusting. We're above that. See, in Matthew's account, I believe it's Matthew's account, Jesus also quoted them Hosea 6.6. He says, have you guys not read, which is the greatest clap back ever when Jesus talks to religious leaders, right? He's like, have you not read the Bible, by the way? He's like, have you not read Hosea 6.6? It says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You are using religion thinking you are so upright because you have religious ritualistic practices that you have set by man. He says, You are absolutely missing the knowledge of God. You're missing the mercy that the Lord desires to pour out upon you. And see, this is the reality. He says, I have come to, to save the sick. I have one last note on this section. I have to throw it out there. I've heard people take this section. You may have heard this. They say, Oh, Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus hung out with disgusting people, and he was totally cool with it, right? Can I tell you, Jesus said the exact reason he was there was to heal sick sinners by calling them to repent. He didn't come in and go, hey guys, high five in your sickness and your sins, that's cool, hey, I'm good with that, right? He said, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and trust in me, and I will heal you and cleanse you, amen? absolutely Jesus is ready to come and commune with sinners. We're a room full of them. <laughs> but He redeems sinners. He makes them saints through the power of His blood. Through His authority to forgive sins. And if you have not experienced that, I will tell you why. It's because you've not humbly admitted that you're a sinner. You need to be cleansed. You need to be saved. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at We're going to move pretty quick here. Look at 18 through 22. We see Jesus the bridegroom. It says... The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fasten those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And see, this is an awesome section because it begins, it begins as a question about fasting. But Jesus really gets to the heart on the matter. We'll see how he does this. See, in Matthew 9.14, we're told that it was actually the disciples of John the Baptist who came and asked this question. So I don't think it was an insincere question. Like, if it was just the Pharisees, I could see that. But the disciples of John the Baptist, we understand they fasted often because wasn't their ministry one that was commonly proclaiming judgment and repentance? That was like their whole ministry. The, The Messiah's coming, you must repent, and if you don't, there's judgment coming. It was associated with that. The Pharisees, we know, I believe it's in Luke 18.12, Jesus was talking about the the man that thought he was so righteous in his prayer in the street and he says, oh, I'm so holy. Thank you, Lord. I even fast two times a week. That's what Jesus says about the Pharisee. Pharisees insisted, they prescribed that if you want to be pious, if you want to be holy, you had to fast two times a week. Mondays and Thursdays, I believe, were the days. You had to fast all day long and if you broke that, maybe you're not so holy after all. This is how you show people that you're so holy and awesome. And see, you have probably a good reason why the disciples of John the Baptist did it. It made sense for their ministry. You have these other guys, these Pharisees, they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. They're doing it for self-glorification. And it's interesting because there's only one day in Scripture that says you must fast. It was the Day of Atonement. That was according to Leviticus uh, 16.29. That was the one day that everyone in Israel was to fast. There was definitely a day you had to do it. But now let's be clear. When Jesus is asked this question... He's, he's, he's being told basically like, hey, you guys are, aren't doing the things that usually the holy people do. <laughs> you aren't doing the things that the traditions of men say you're supposed to do when you're in ministry like this. And see... Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. And see, the appropriate purpose for fasting was to seek the voice of the Lord. It wasn't to get God to do something. Let me be clear, God's never your genie, amen? We say, Lord, should I step through this thing? Should I go to this place? We're seeking to be united as close as possible to the Lord and get all the things out of the way that would distract. And when those hunger pains come, right, we use that as a reminder to pray and seek the Lord again. We're not doing it to show people, look at how holy we are. Look at us make our long faith and look all worn out. Jesus said, don't go be like that. Don't do that. (laughs) But he doesn't immediately answer the question. Instead, he gives them another one of these cross questions like a rabbinical practice. He says again in verse 19, he says, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so Jesus is saying, it's not that we don't fast. It's not that my people don't fast. Remember, Jesus said, when you fast, speaking to his disciples in Matthew 6. So you are to fast. God forbid we never fast the people of God. We should. But don't think that makes you holy. Don't think that that's the thing that makes you right. And don't go prescribing everyone. You've got to fast on this day, that day, this day, or the other. We have to do it for the right reason. Does that make sense? Jesus is not saying don't fast. But what He is saying, He says, I am the bridegroom. I have come to fulfill the promises of God to all those who have hoped in the promises of God. Can I tell you, when we understand who Jesus is, we go, man, He's arrived. The one that all the law and the prophets spoke of. How can I not celebrate that Jesus has come? And see, the religious ritualistic practices of men, it was like, oh, we're going to make ourselves holy. We're going to fast. Jesus says, dude, I came to make you holy. I'm with you, and now it's a time of celebration. Can I tell you that in that time, the rabbinic law was this? If there was a wedding happening, you didn't have to honor the Sabbath obligations. Did you know that? So, if there, remember, a wedding went not just one day in the time, it went like seven days. We went to a wedding the other night, it was awesome, by the way. It was like one day. I'm like, man, if that went a week, you have, it's just a great, joyous celebration. It's an awesome thing. And see, in their time, they said, if it happens to be that the Sabbath winds up or some kind of sabbatical rule is going to take away from the joy of celebrating the marriage, the arrival of the bridegroom, then no, we don't have to observe it for right now because joy is more important than religious obligation in those moments. And again, they said, that's okay. So Jesus says, look at the bridegroom's here. Why would you expect them to fast and be sorrowful? He says, I've arrived. And I'll tell you, I'm going to bring them joy like they've never known. There's no need to fast right now. I'm physically with them, by the way. I think that's funny, right? We're always trying to get the voice of the Lord. He's right there with them. Why would you have to fast? He says, I'm with you. He says, but there's this psalm note in verse 20. He says, the day will come when the bridegroom's taken away. This is the first allusion in the book of Mark to the fact that Jesus was going to go and suffer and die on a cross. He says, there is a time when I'm going to be taken from them. And oh, they're going to mourn when that happens. But right now, I'm with them. And it's a blessed thing. He says, listen, I'm gonna use two garments to explain something to you. Don't take an old garment and put a new patch on it. Because the rest of the garment's already shrunk. But when this thing starts to get washed and used, that new patch is gonna make the tear bigger because it's gonna shrink and tear it apart. He says, wineskins, these things we carry wine in, they, they, they start to crack and whatnot. And if you put wine in there and then the wine ferments, it's gonna blow it out and all the wine's gonna pour out. It's gonna be useless. He says, here's what you're trying to do. You're taking your religious practices, your rituals of men, and you're trying to pour this new wine that is the arrival of the bridegroom into it. And it's going to destroy your system. (laughs) You know why? Because their system was not God's system. They took God's system and made it their system. They took 10 commandments, they made 613 rules out of it. Could you imagine? Have you ever been in a legalistic relationship in any form and fashion? It's exhausting. You're constantly looking, oh man, I'm going to break the rule, oh this is terrible, I can't do this. You're constantly worried, you're constantly mourning. Jesus came, let me be clear, the law was always good, amen? Man is the one that makes the law wicked. For two reasons. Either by breaking it, which all of us have done. Romans tells us that. Knowledge of the law comes knowledge of sin. I think it's Romans 3.20. But also, we take the law and we say, Oh, I'm going to use it to my advantage. I'm going to make myself look righteous. I'm going to make myself look holy. And Jesus says, Man, you guys have this for all the wrong reasons. You don't understand the joy that is before you because you're blinded by your rituals. I have one last application to this. (laughs) It's interesting because... We're talking about Calvary Chapel and what Calvary Chapel always, what it started as, right? As something that was like insane, like these hippies getting together with this old balding guy and doing this thing where they all work together, right, for the glory of God. Can I tell you what happens sometimes? We go, oh, well, Calvary Chapel does things this way. This is how we're supposed to do it. You know, Pastor Chuck used to always say, God forbid people start taking my like, commitment to doing things certain ways and making them a denomination. I've been in the room so many times where we said, man, that would be an awesome thing to do. And everyone goes, ah, oh, but that's not what we do at Calvary Chapel. That's scary when we get there. Let me be clear, we always want to be doctrinal and scriptural. Amen? But there's got to be some flexibility to the fact that, man, the Lord can move in a way we never thought He was going to move. It has to be according to Scripture. It has to be according to doctrine. It can't violate His character. can't violate His Word. But can I tell you, people thought Calvary Chapel was insane when it started. <laughs> They had put new carpet in the church. And these hippies came in. You guys know the story, right? They came in barefoot. I don't know if this is in the movie. I haven't seen it yet. They come in. Okay, thank you. Go watch the movie, I guess. It would be better than how I'm telling it. But the hippies come in barefoot. And the old people in the church are like, Dude, are you crazy? That's new carpet. He's like, look it. I'll rip the carpet out before I kick these people out of here. The systems of man that you think are so cute and holy. Man, if they're not directly from God, you've messed it up. And he gives one more explanation. Look at 23 to 28. It says, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a huge statement, by the way, at the end there. Let's talk about what's happening. Jesus has this experience that Mark talks about and says they came to him about fasting and they said you have to do it the way we say we do it. And Jesus says, dude, you're trying, you, you messed this whole thing up and this movement of the Lord is going to burst that system you're trying to apply here. Then, His disciples and Jesus, they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, we have to assume they're, they're, they're not doing work, they're not doing excessive things. We're told that in the grain fields, you were allowed, I believe it's in, let me give you the verse reference, it is in Deuteronomy 23.25, you were permitted to pluck grain by hand if it was standing in a field. You couldn't go get a sickle and cut it down and rob your neighbor, right? You couldn't go, cool, I'm good for the harvest now, right? You could take a little bit... If You were hungry. The idea was you're going to take enough to feed yourself. Praise the Lord for His provision. You're allowed to do that. And see, the Pharisees, they would know that. But what they also had in mind here was Exodus thirty-four twenty-one. It says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. See, here they said, Okay, yeah, you can go get things out of the field maybe, but right now, you know what you guys are technically doing? Not only are you taking things, you're doing harvesting because you're pulling it out. You're going to go ahead, what's the term here? You're going to reap it, you're going to thresh it, you're going to winnow it, and you're preparing it to eat it. That's too much work. You're sinning like four times every time you take a head of grain. Imagine Jesus, the sinless one, the Holy One of God. Like, he doesn't know the rules that God has made. And these guys are like, oh, man, his disciples are doing this. And he's not checking his disciples. He's not telling them. And I love it again. The greatest clap back, okay? He says, have you never read... Again, I love when Jesus does this. <laughs> you want to come to me with your traditions of men. You've made your 613 rules, and one of them is like, oh, for sure, this thing that, again, Levit- or Deuteronomy 23.25 said was permitted. You as men said, oh, no, we've decided that's not allowed anymore. You're God now. You're just choosing what's allowed to be done. what's not. He says, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you scripture to show why we're allowed to do this. This is what we're talking about when we say we want to do everything rooted in Scripture, in doctrine. Not according to our opinions or some other person's opinions, but according to the Word of God. Amen? Jesus did this. And what he does is he references 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. And he's talking about this time when David, who was is, who is the anointed king, by the way, but was despised and rejected by men. Saul was trying to kill him, chase him down. He goes out with his men that are committed to him. I gotta think there's a parallel between Jesus and his disciples. The anointed king Jesus, who's being despised by man, is not recognized as king, has his men with him who are hungry. And David and his men, they go into the place where the priests were. a and Ahimelech, according to 1 Samuel 21. And all that's there, according to 1 Samuel twenty-one six, it says that the priests had holy bread there. They had the stuff that would be offered unto either the priests and unto the Lord. It was something very sacred. But when they came in, David says, Man, my guys are hungry. We don't have anything to eat. And you have provision here. May we have some. <laughs> give us provision for these guys. And they said that all that was there was that provision of the Lord, but they understood something very important. We're almost done. Let me close this out. Human need will always take precedence over ritualistic religious ordinance. Human need. This is important because we get in such a rhythm of this is church, this is my church service. I'm going to go to church, I'm going to come in, I'm going to get my donut and coffee, I'm going to sit in the pew, I'm going to listen to the guy, the crazy guy on stage, and I'm going to leave and go home and come back a week from now. Can I tell you, there's so much human need around you that often we go, oh, but that's the world, man, they're sick. I don't want to get involved with that. Oh, no, that's not for me, that's for someone else. Can I tell you, when we start going, no, they just need to show up at church, let the pastor talk to them for an hour. Can I tell you, that's cool, bring them to church, praise the Lord. But the reality is when we start thinking that our rules, when we go, man, we just got a new carpet in here, don't let those sick people in our room. No, let them in because we have the answer. That is Jesus Christ, amen? Someone said, like the idea of, if you're driving down the road here to come to church and someone, you see a mother and her children stranded by her car, don't be like, oh, dude, i got to get to church, man. That stinks for her, but i got to get to church. I'll see if she's here when I get back. Dude, what is the whole point of going to church so that we would know what's right to do before God and before men? We will never be upset with you if you're late because you stopped to help someone. That's human need. What a testimony, amen? But we get in our rhythm, we're like, oh, but I got to be at church, man. I got to get there, got to be there. That's a good thing. I get it. But in this case, these men were thinking, no, I'd rather your disciples fell over dead in the field instead of break our traditions. And Jesus says, you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand the things that you claim that you know. He says, you're neglecting clear human need in the name of religious ritualistic observance. You've absolutely missed God's heart on the matter. God forbid we become a church that is just about this is how we do what we do because we do it this way. Again, by scripture, by doctrine, but being open to man, what is the Lord doing? How is the Lord calling us to witness and reach the loss? How is the Lord calling us to be flexible and have a heart like his? Amen? Look at 27. Again, 27, 28, the way this wraps up is this profound statement. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath." This is awesome, because the point of the Sabbath was, yes, you were to rest. But do you know what you were resting in? The fact that the Lord is good, that He is holy, that He has provided so well. We're following His example of rest from the seventh day. Did God need to rest? He did not. But He did so for us to learn that rest is a good thing. But you know how scary it is when we start to take what was prescribed by God to be restful and refreshing and glorifying Him and make it about us and burdensome and exhausting? That's not God's heart on it, amen? This should not be a place we come to. I'm talking about church now. Shouldn't be a place where we go, oh, gosh, I have to go again, man. Sunday morning. That guy's probably going to talk for like an hour, by the way, right? This thing is going to be so long drawn out. Can we just get out of here? I got reservations at Texas Roadhouse or something, right? Like, they even do reservations at Texas Roadhouse. You know what I mean. But it's you guys are thinking, I got to get there, check the box, and get out. Man, I hope you understand how refreshing and what a blessing it is to be here with God's people. I hope you understand the goodness it is that we have His Word of God to crack it open to get it, and then we are blessed by it. And if anyone is on you about making this a ritualistic thing, where you better be here every Sunday, you're not really a Christian, I'll tell you, that's not of the Lord. I want you here, but when there's someone broken down on the side of the road, man, pray for the Lord to lead you, amen? When there's someone at work that says, man, I really need to meet with someone for coffee on Wednesday night, you're like, dude, I was going to go to a prayer and worship night, though. Guess what? Seek the Lord. And if that's the time to meet with Him, meet with Him. Amen? Look for those opportunities to take what you've been given and uphold the heart of God and do it rightly. Don't start to make it a trip of, oh, I can't meet with you because I'm holy and got to get to church. I'm so You don't understand. Until you're on my level, then maybe we can talk. Come meet me at church or something. That's cool. Invite people to church. Again, I hope you hear me. Do you guys track with me on this? Bring people in. But don't push people out. Make sure we have the heart of the Lord to say, come and call them to repentance, but to care for them, to love them. And I love this last verse. Again, this is where we're done. It says, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) We say, that is a wild statement. Jesus just called himself the Master of the Sabbath day. That It would absolutely be blasphemous if he's not God the Son. He says, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that's come from God, he is in charge of this whole thing you're going to come to me and tell me that I'm breaking the very rules I'm the master of. (laughs) You're so blind to the one who stands before you and invites you in to know the true Sabbath. And see, here's the other thing. Not only is he the one that has the authority to set the rules, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because he is going to fulfill what the Sabbath always pointed to, rest. The book of Hebrews talks about this. We no longer have to go in and suffer with sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, trying to attain or sustain some kind of righteousness in ourselves. Jesus went to bear the sins of many once. His body was offered one time to complete the work, and now we can rest in the work of Jesus. Amen? If you're saying that you rest in Jesus, but you are caught up in all the traditions and rituals of man, can I tell you, it's time to repent. Put your trust in Jesus alone. <laughs> Praise the Lord for his word, for his guidance on what is right and what is true, but don't go tweaking them and making them your rules. Don't make them where, ah, oh, I think this actually means this. Walk by scripture, walk by truth, but there should be a joy in the fact that the bridegroom has come, amen? God forbid we're a miserable people. I've found that legalism and misery go together really well. I've never met a guy that's so celebrating the grace of God where he's like, yeah, but I'm miserable because of the grace of God. i never met that. Again, we don't want to insult the Spirit of grace and trample the Son of God underfoot, as Hebrews 10.29 talks about. But we should know the joy that Jesus is our rest. Amen? All right, let's pray.